With us this week is F1 veteran, Ed Taylor. <laughs> um, Ed, you started off in, oh, so long ago, 1986. 1986, um, yes. Working for good years, wasn't it? Now, before you yes. start, how did you get the job in the first place before you tell us what you did? I'd been offered, uh, an old family friend of ours um, was the assistant team manager of Goodyear. He'd worked, he'd worked at Goodyear for many, many years, really, since, since he, he, he went from school. And of course, Goodyear was based in Wolverhampton. And um, he, I'd seen him sort of traveling the world, um, all, I think from about 79, 1980, something like that. He'd been working on the race team. And um, it said to me on several occasions, would I like a job in F1? And I says, no, thank you very much. And um, as much as I sort of envied the, uh, the the travel that he was doing, F1 really didn't hold any, um, you know, I wasn't really interested in it. I was more interested in my music and, and other things that I was, I was up to. But, You're a drummer, um, pardon? You're a drummer, aren't you saying that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've, I've been playing drums since I was about sort of six or seven years old, really. So right. uh, we'll come, we're coming but, to that later. Yeah, we will. But no, um, I'd been, I'd been sort of doing different things with, with my bands and that. And, and as, as you know, you always get with the, the low level that we were at, you never make any money at it. So um, Tony, our friend, he, he said to me, he says, Ed, he said, um, do you fancy sort of earning a, earning a few quid? Um, he says unloading tyres at Goodyear, the race tyres, because what it was, all the um, all the race team were over in Montreal for for the Grand Prix, and of course, all the all the Goodyear tyres were manufactured in Akron, in um, is it Ohio? I think it is. Yeah. So, and then all all the tyres were shipped over to Wolverhampton because a lot more races were in uh, were in Europe in those days. So anyway, he said. If you want to come and, um, uh, you know, unload some containers and put them in the warehouse and all that kind of thing, he says, it's just a cash-in-hand job. And I says, yeah, okay. Um, so I went along and um, emptied these containers and then all the guys came back from Montreal and um, they said, would you like to come to a test at Silverstone to, you know, start fitting some tyres? And I said, well, I'm not doing much else. Why not? You know, I may as well. So um, we jump in the minibus uh, from Wolverhampton down to Silverstone. And bear in mind, I've had no interest in motor racing whatsoever, really. Um, I was aware of people like James Hunt and Jim Clark and Jackie Stewart and that. But, uh, but the first thing that I did when I got there to Silverstone um, the first engine that I heard running up was the Lotus Renault and it was Senna's car. And I was suddenly almost like transfixed with it, really. It, I thought, I mean, this is a completely different world. And um, from then on in, um, I, you know, we fitted the tyres for the test, everything like that. I will say about this one as well, um, I don't want to, um, sort of go on about one one particular incident and that, but 
But this this test was the first time that Frank Williams had actually been back to a race circuit since his accident at, uh, you know, coming away from Paul Ricard. Yeah. And Frank got this, wheeled in. Was this, just a one, one, was this just a one-day test? Then? Yeah, it was Type. just a one-day. Or, or maybe... No, it might have been a two-day test. It was, it was, it, you know, it was the general sort of a tire test before the Silverstone Grand Prix. Yeah, yeah um, but they wheeled, they wheeled Frank in in his um, in his wheelchair, and you know he looked awful. You know, which we all know that uh, the struggles Frank's had uh, all his life ever since then. But he really looked, he really looked bad. But I remember him, um, you know, Nigel. Nigel Mansell and Nelson Piquet both sort of had the pictures taken with him and everything. And then suddenly um, they'd been doing the tests and that, but then a call had come into um, into the circuit that there'd been an accident on, um, I'm not sure if it was the M40 back then, but anyway, there'd been an accident locally and they needed a helicopter and somebody knew that Nigel Mansell had come to the circuit in his helicopter. So at lunchtime at Silverstone, Nigel shot off and flew his helicopter to this, um, to this accident on the motorway and helped transfer the, uh, the, you know, the, the patients or the victims and that from that accident, I think, to um, John Radcliffe Hospital in uh, Oxford. And uh, and he came he came back sort of a bit later in the afternoon, put his overalls back on, jumped in the car, and and off he went. So the he um, so from that test, um, the next thing I know, I'm in the I'm in the in the minibus heading down to Paul Ricard for the um, for the eighty six Grand Prix, and and that was it. That was that was my first race. And, so now uh, on the race team. Yeah, I'm on the race yeah. team. Like yeah, that. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they, they got how it worked at Goodyear. They they got about I think six um, full full members employees of the of Goodyear, and um, and during the season, then they took on sort of uh, you know temporary guys, and of which I was one of those. Um, and we stayed, you know, for the uh, for the rest of the season. But like the other guys. Um, they they come out of sort of road car tire building, or they were truck drivers, or you know one or two had worked on the rally team as well. So, um, but that that was right. that was what we were. Um, right. Yeah. Um, so, well, that was what the summer of eighty six. So you did it all the way through eighty um, six. Yeah, I did every race in eighty six. Um, I mean, off the top of my head now, I think we did the French Grand Prix, then uh, the British, then Ger- sure. uh, what was it? Hungary, Germany, and Austria, or whichever whichever way those guys yeah. came through. Uh, yeah, Monza, Portugal, um, yeah. Mexico, and Australia. Right, so Australia used to be at the end of the season. That, oh yeah, yeah, That's that right. was. You know, there, there was never never a better race than the um, than the Adelaide Grand Prix. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. So listen, uh, when you put the tyres on the rims, yeah, what were, putting, what were you putting inside them? What, as in uh, to blow them up? Nitrogen. When I started, it was air. 
And as I remember now, it's a long time ago, but I think partially through that season, we started using nitrogen. And I believe that what happened was um, the Goodyear sort of compressors and inflation equipment was, I mean, a lot of that gear was, was, um, it was all a bit Heath Robinson. And what you used to get with the uh, compressors, although you've got vapor traps on and water traps, you used to get a lot of moisture in the, in, in the, in the air, you know, that the uh, compressors were generating. And, it, we were told that what happened as well sometimes was um, certainly with the qualifying tyres. I mean, we used to run, we used to run sort of like five compounds at that time, and the 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 de- like the designated E compound at, um, at at any circuit was a one lap qualifier. So that's all they were good for. And then they would come in and they would be completely, completely blistered and they were ragged. Um, but, you know, I, I remember hearing that one of the reasons for using nitrogen, because it's obviously a very, very dry, uh, it's, it's an inert gas, it's a dry gas. There's no, no moisture in it because what seemed to be happening was little sort of drops of moisture would get inside the carcass of the tyre. And when it heated up, um, it would boil. And they, th- you know, the engineers thought that that helped contribute to, to some of the blisters. But um, so after that, and I'm pretty sure, uh, I mean, I'll stand corrected by other people if, if they know better, but I'm pretty sure that in 86, that was when nitrogen really started to get used as, um, as the standard. So. And it- and it didn't make it. Did it make the tires run better, or or something, or was it just purely for this? Moisture? Well, I think, I've, yeah, I think, I think it stabilised the, uh, the the pressures. You know, there wasn't the fluctuation in the in the pressures of the tires because I mean, drivers like Senna, um, they could tell um, across the corners of the car, they could tell between like half a pound of psi if there was any difference in, in the cars and that. And the other thing as well, obviously, with the um, – I'm not – probably 80, maybe 84 that they really started coming onto radial tyres. Well, they, those were a lot more stable in um, – because when they used to use the cross plies, I mean, cross plies used to expand and you'd, you'd get, you know, as, as the heat was generated by the tyres, the actual – the, the, the tires would grow, and um, because they were obviously you know a different con- um, construction, but with the radials they were much more of a stable designer tire. And uh, and I you know I, I'm not as I say there's going to be experts come out and watch this and say no he's wrong about that, but you know I'm pretty sure what I say is is, is roundabout on the mark. So. Uh- it gets to the end of the season. So yeah. were you sort of staff at that point a good year or were you like freelance just employed for the race season? Yeah, I was, I was employed for, for the, you know, for the season. But all, the, the hope was always that you'd, you'd, you'd carry on. Um, but what, what happened at that particular time was, um, I mean, I'll come on to the, the, the Australian race in a minute, but there'd been a lot of, 
talk about um, Goodyear being taken over. And I think there was a bid, almost like a hostile bid or something, put in from James Goldsmith to buy, yeah, to buy the whole of Goodyear. And what happened was Goodyear, as a global company, had to pull in a hell of a lot of money to ward off this takeover bid. And consequently, that meant that they had to, you know, really rein in their horns on all their racing activities. And Formula One was a victim of that. So at the end of 86, Goodyear actually pulled out of F1. And that meant, you know, that all all of us guys were out of work. Um, I think that was possibly a bit of a relief to some of the management there because, the, you know, the, probably the, uh, the best way of saying it, we were, we were a bit of a rum bunch and it was, we sort of worked hard and played even harder. Um, and I think they looked at it with a bit of a sigh of relief because back in, then in 87, they decided, I mean, this, this takeover bid was, um, was warded off. And they decided to come back into into F1. So there was never really quite, you know, a a season's break or anything like that. But when we all sort of um, wanted to, you know, get our jobs back and that, certainly the temps, um, you know, we we were sort of, it was, thanks thanks for your help in the past, lads, but we got... (laughs) But but no, I, I suppose really the... The abiding memory of of many people of of that particular season was Nigel Mansell's tyre blowing up in Adelaide. And um, I actually remember fitting all of the Williams race tyres for that that meeting. Um, Because what what used to happen... um, all the all the teams would bring the tyres over uh, sort of on a Thursday. You'd fit up probably 400, 450 tyres for all the different teams on, on a Thursday. And you were allocated, you were allocated different teams to do. So, you know, all the tyres would come through into, into the fitting area and you would get sort of, um, you know, one guy would be fitting all the Williams stuff, then he'd do the McLaren stuff. And um, usually if you play, if you played up at some stage, they gave you the Lotus speed lines or the Zach speed wheels and which, whichever, which bear in mind, we used to fit these tires manually and there was no automatic fitting machines or anything like that. And we used to fit these tires on what was, what we used to call the iron maiden, which was basically, you know, it was almost like a big heavy steel cotton, cotton reel thing with a pole in you drop the wheel over the top and um, and then fit your tires. Well, I mean, I'm only five foot seven, so some of those rear tires were very difficult for me to to lift up and actually. They were massive back then, weren't they? Yeah, really? yeah. Well, they were eighteen inch. They were eighteen inch tires, you know. And and I found it sort of, you know, it was hard work. I'm, I think I put two inches on my chest during the sort of the the, the nine races that I did. But anyway, you know, um, I remember fitting those uh, fitting those Williams tires, 
and we went through the weekend and um and then what happens after after you know the course there used to be a sunday morning warm up for half an hour four, four hours before the race then what would happen then is that is the engineers would say uh, they they'd select the the, the tyres that they wanted for the uh, to start the race and then for the first pit, pit stop and what have you. Of course, after the warm up, they'd bring those tyres back to the uh, to the fitting area and we'd we'd check all the balances on them as well, uh, just to make sure that everything was okay. Um, but the race went off, and I I ended up in the back of the Williams garage um, because as Goodyear guys, unless you were the the actual you know, management or the American race engineers, you weren't allowed in the pit lane most of the time or on the grid. Uh, so, you know, we, we were hovering about at the back of the garages. And I remember standing, um, watching the race with actually Roseanne Mansell, and a guy called Sheridan Thin, who was, um, he was like a sponsor manager. Or, or Nigel's managing, uh, but anyway, um, of course. And then we were watching the TV, and we saw Rosberg's tire blow up, and um, suddenly there was a you know almighty kerfuffle running around from the Goodyear guys. Um, Nigel only needed to finish third in that race to win the world championship, but Nigel, being Nigel, he, he just had to blast on and try and win that race. And um, I actually, I've, I've spoken to or, or chatted to Frank Durney about this. And uh, I, I always seem to remember that after Rosberg's tyre had blown up, that they, they tried to get Nigel in on the na- next lap. Um, but as he went past the, the pit board, uh, he, he was obviously too late to, to come in the pit entrance. So he shot off on the next lap. And then, of course, we all know what happened then. His tyre let go. Um, and he did well to keep that on the circuit. But, oh, I mean, yeah. yeah, absolutely. No, if, if, if he'd have stopped the car in the middle of the track, then he'd, he'd have, they, they would have red flagged the race because it was over three quarters distance. And? And he would have, he would have won the world championship. But um, that's it. Unbelievable. <laughs> So yeah, so, we um, did. They have uh, any? Did um, any of the Williams boys afterwards have a word with you at all? Well, no, because it, it wasn't. It wasn't until until probably a couple of years later, we were testing in Portugal, and um, Nigel came down the pit lane on his push bike, and it was, we were standing mooching around or whatever, and Nigel came to have a chat and. Um, he, he he sort of recognised me from from Goodyear, and we got talking. And I says, "Yeah, Nigel." I said, um, "I says we well remember that tyre explosion in Adelaide." And he, you know, he he says, "Don't if he talk to me about that," you know. And I says, "Well, I says I have to admit to you now." I said, "It was probably me that fitted that tyre." And he sort of he grabbed me round the neck and threw me to the floor. <laughs> But um, yeah, it was it was it was one of those things, you know. But um, yeah, it was. I suppose really, it, it's it, it's sort of nice to be associated with um, with a bit of an infamous incident like that. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so listen, uh, before we get on to eighty seven, 
Um, yeah. When the tyres came back from a meeting, yeah, uh, and they go back to the factory, yeah, you said you, you started off just stacking them up or whatever. But what yeah. happens? What happens to them after that? Are they recycled or melted down? Whatever. I've actually no idea what they do with them, even now. There is a great big housing estate somewhere in Derbyshire that when you walk on it must bounce because when I was there, all of those tyres went to landfill. Yeah, and we used to load up the Arctics with all the scrub tyres and we would take them up to, um, to this big, almost like a, a quarry type thing, great big hole in the ground. And, and chuck them all in. There were tens of thousands of them. And I, I mean, you would have thought really at the time that a company like Goodyear would have, would have a shredding plant or something like that, that they could, uh, yeah, but, but no, apart from one or two tyres that might get robbed for um, souvenir purposes or something like that. Yeah, yeah, you know, the ubiquitous coffee table. Um, no, most of those tyres went into landfill. So saying that, then, I don't know whether you know, what do they do with them now? Do they, they must recycle them and melt them? They must do now. I mean, I, I, I have no idea what they do with them now, Gary. I don't know. You know, I mean, I, I, did, I did work for, um, for a short time for, uh, you know, a Midlands company who supplied all the, um, all the Avon tyres for historic Grand Prix and everything like that. Um, I mean, we would sell new new tires to sort of like the well-heeled runners, um, and we'd sell the scrub tires to the less well-heeled runners. You know, so so they were they were re, they were recycled that way, and um, it, it usually ended up with a, an extra bit of spending money in our back pockets as well. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so listen, so eighty seven. Yeah. So. Did you did you finish with Goodyear at the end of eighty six? Yeah, I was, yeah, the end of eighty six. That was it. We were sort of, you know, we were given our marching orders, really, and um, and and so I was because because the, the thing at the time as well was um, most of the Goodyear drivers had HGV licenses because that was that was really part of the job. I came into it a, a little bit later, and I'd not got an HGV. But I thought, well, if I want to continue in motor racing, which I actually did, I thought I need to go and get a, a Class 1 licence. So at the start of 87, maybe February, March or something, it was, it was obvious I wasn't going back to Goodyear. But I, I, I took my test to get a Class 1 licence and, um, and then went off to, you know, get some experience, really, just driving general haulage. Um, you know, delivering sprouts and spuds and all that kind of thing and great big tins of catering, baked beans, as I remember. But, um, but yeah, um, and then what you did, you sort of had a look around because I thought, well, it's, it's going to be difficult to get straight back into F1. Um, so what you, what you did back in those days was, was bought Autosport every Thursday and and started going through the you know through the job pages. So Ed, when you um, say you wanted to get back into F one, do you mean on the tire side or with the team? Whichever, whichever really. But basically, as a truckie, 
because you know, I mean, back then a, a, tr- a truckie was, um, you know, we, we we had to sort of turn our hands to to loads of different jobs, and um, yeah, I mean, my my experience at the time really was 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 fitting tyres. But I didn't mind which which way I was going to get back into it. But having a class one uh, HGV was was my ticket to get back in. And also, it's one of those things in F1. Once you've been in it, you've always got more of a chance of um, of getting back back into it. You know, you you sort That's of right. That's right. you're in the you're in the family then. You know, exactly. Yeah. So into 87, so yeah. you're still looking around for a, a work. And yeah. This is where John McDonald comes into the picture, isn't it? It is, yeah. I, I saw an advert for, um, as I say, in autosport. Um, truck driver wanted for um, new F1 team. Oh, okay. So I thought, well, we'll have a go for that. Um, I went down to Bista to meet Mick Ralph. Now, obviously, Mick Ralph and John McDonald had been the Ram F1 team, Ralph and McDonald. Um, And what they'd done was to try and... um, They'd done a deal to run a Benetton, um, a Benetton BMW B186 or whatever it was, um, in... For for about five races, and I don't know how many people know the story of this one, but in '87 um, the F1 Championship was split up between the turbo cars and a series. I think it was the Jim Clark Trophy or, or something like that for normally aspirated engines, which was which was teams like Tyrrell. Um, blimey, I can't remember now who else was running running Cosworths and that. It was sort of but, the less uh, Pardon? It was like the less, less well-offs. Yeah, yeah, of which, you know, unfortunately Tyrrell always seemed to be one of those perennial less well-off teams. Um, possibly uh, Arrows, what was Arrows doing? No, they were running um, They were running turbos, weren't they, I think? But, uh, yeah, but anyway, um, John had done a deal with um, with Benetton to to run this single car, and um, he got sponsorship from uh, this Italian clothing company called Trasardi, and also it was uh, it was it was being run by this Japanese company called Middlebridge uh, Middlebridge Engineering. Um, so the plan was to do the first race. I think it was at Monza which was, you know, three quarters of the way through the season. Um, but I, I remember as well, <laughs> when I'd been to see Mick Ralph about getting the job as the truckie, which actually, you know, he offered me the job straight away, which was, which was fabulous. Um, there was a guy stood in reception as I come out and he got his suit on and his white tie and his briefcase and everything. He was obviously a driver. Uh, but it was Perry Perry McCarthy, and um, and, and and Perry was uh, he was he was obviously putting himself around to try and uh, to try and get a drive. And um, but anyway, I think the deal had been done to run run this uh, Italian guy called Emanuele Piro. And um, so 
we got, I think there were, there was seven or eight, nine of us. That was all. Um, you know, and we got this car and um, the chief mechanic there was a fabulous guy called Dave Luckett, who, again, a lot of people who will probably watch this know Dave as the guy that was um, badly injured at Zolder in the start line accident with um, Patrese. And when Siggy Storr hit him, you know, hit him at the start of the race because Dave had jumped out. Uh, the car had stalled, Patrese's car had stalled. Dave jumped out to try and start the car up uh, just as the green flag dropped. And um, and Dave was hit and badly injured. But um, but he, he recovered from that. I mean, obviously, sadly, Dave passed away not very long ago. But, um, you know, he started um, getting all, you know, looking at this car and getting, you know, new bits made and everything you know, taken apart and crack checked and everything that you got to do. But the, so was, the, this, um, was this was it like a year old car or was it a new car? Yeah, yeah, it was. It, it was the car that won in Mexico in '86. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, which was uh, you know, I mean, Burger Burger and Fabi were had been driving those cars, um, and of course the BMW was probably the most um, you know the most powerful engine on the grid. Um, but then we started to. Um, you know, hear that obstacles were being put in the way as far as running this car. I think people like Jack, Jackie Oliver and Ken Tyrrell sort of said, you know, they they objected to the fact that this this car, which was potentially a race-winning car straight out of the box, um, they started protesting it and saying, oh, you know, they, you, they, they can't run this halfway through the season. And I mean, I don't know a lot of the politics that went on, but obviously Johnny Mack was was pretty close friends with Bernie and Bernie was trying to uh, smooth, the, smooth the path. But in the end, we never got an ECU from BMW to run that engine. Um, all, all I ever remember that getting supplied was this 45-gallon drum of absolutely evil-smelling fuel. And um, But, you know, apart from putting it in into the car to make sure that the bag tank wasn't leaking, um, that was it. So, consequently, that, you know, that got scuppered. Um, the doors were pulled down and off we go into the distance looking for more work. And, um, but, you know, Mick Ralph and, and Ray Bolter and, um, I mean, one of the guys who was working on the Formula Four 2000 team at that time at Middlebridge was a guy called Ronnie Meadows, who's, who's been sort of one of the Toto Wolf's head men at Mercedes now for a long, long time. Um, he's been sporting director at uh, BAR, <clears throat> um, Mercedes, and that. So right, Ronnie's did done well, but I mean, he, at the time, he was just like a junior mechanic and and a bit of a, you know, he was he was learning his trade. But um, so as I say, Mick Mick Ralph and and Ray Bolter and that they said keep in touch, and if anything happens for uh, for eighty eight then we'll give you a shout. Um, but then it transpired coming into HX. I, then I, I went back on the, uh, I went back on general haulage um, and then got a call from, from Mick Ralph to say, 
are you interested in, uh, we're going to be running three cars in Formula 3, in the British Formula 3 Championship. Um, and I thought, well, that's not Formula 1, is it? You know, but I mean, it's it's back in racing. I mean, I was obviously got ideas above my station because, I mean, the, th- the thing is with me, most people that get involved in motorsports, and certainly F1, have worked from the ground up. They work from karting into Formula Ford, into Formula Ford 2000, F3, um, F3000, then F1. I did it the other way. I started in F1 and worked, worked <laughs> down. Downwards. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, so, Formula 3, I thought, well, yeah, let's give it a go. And... Um, so they'd, they'd set up, um, you know, they, they were going to run three cars. And we got um, and it, a couple of English guys, one guy called John Alcorn, um, who I think had possibly won the, the Formula Four 2000 Championship the year before. A um, guy called Phil Andrews, who's a, a fellow Brummy like myself. Um, and a Belgian guy called Arno Guio. Um, and... Yeah, we we went along and, and to the first race at Brands Hatch. I mean, we actually won it with uh, with John Alcorn. They were Reynards. Reynard, uh, I think the engine VW Spice was it, something like that at the time. Yeah, I think it was uh, back in those days. It was obviously Reynards and and Rolts who were uh, you know they they were the main cars. Um. But yeah, I did the first the first race down there. Well, because um, I mean the, the year before at Middlebridge and, and working in Bicester, um, it was it was sort of like about eighty five miles from my house. So what I tended to do during the uh, during the week, um, we rented digs down there, you know, and I I found a little place at um, RAF Bicester who one of the ladies who, you know, she, she was in the RAF and she, she got a room to rent and what have you. And so, you know, we, 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 we lodged there during the week. Um, but in 88, um, I'd heard that this guy was looking to, the young, youngest chap who was looking to rent, rent a room out in his house. And I went along to meet him and, and met this big tall fella and uh, whose name was Nick Worth. And um, I ended up lodging with Nick, and there was another one of the mechanics from, um, from Middlebridge who, who was sharing another room. And, um, yeah, and, and we were there for a little while. Well, of course, Nick Worth was a young aerodynamicist working with Adrian Newey at March. And so Adrian, um, sorry, Nick said to me, um, I mean, he, he, I remember he, he, he came back once and I think they'd, they'd just handed out some team gear and Nick had got this uh, new Leighton House sweatshirt on. And um, I don't think he took it off for about four months. He was just, you know, he just lived in the thing. I mean, he was, he was so enthusiastic. And uh, but I mean Nick Nick was a very very clever guy, and um, but yeah he he said we we got talking and he said Ed he says um, I don't know if you're interested he says but there's a you're doing the F three and that he says but there's a, a job as a truckie on the test team at uh, at March if you're interested 
And I said, yeah. And I said, that'd be great because, I mean, that's that's getting back into F1 then. Um, so the March factory was literally five minutes walk from the Middlebridge factory. So um, Nick organised um, an interview for me and I went round there to meet uh, Robin Day. And uh, Robin was in, was, was in charge of the test team. And... Um, yeah, we, we we sort of hit it off because I, I'd known Robin from from the year before with Brabham or a couple of years before with Brabham, and um, and yeah, so he, he gave me the job on the test team, and um, so that that went on for a while, and then sort of like the test team start integrating with with the race team a little bit more, and um, and then I ended up on the race team because I presume yeah. that. March at that point, or was it called Leighton House March at that point? Yeah, it, they were sponsored by Leighton House because Akagi had got, um, I mean, they'd, they, they painted the car blue, the, you know, the famous blue in 87. And, um, and they'd run a modified Formula 3000 car and uh, for, for Capelli just as a, as a one, as a one car operation. Um, but then, Akagi put more money into it into in eighty eight, and I think I think it was part way through that season that a deal went through to call it um, Leighton House March. Uh, they 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 you know he put enough money into sort of by the naming rights of it so to speak, um, and it and it went on from there. And of course you know we had a fantastic season. Um, I mean, McLaren won 15 out of the 16 races. How um, many people on the team, Ed, at that point? 28. God. <laughs> that's not the same number that do a tyre uh, change now. Well, that's the same number that sort of they take they take to open cans of fizzy pop. That's <laughs> 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 not getting to that. I know. <laughs> but no, it's... Um, but that's that's what that's what we needed. You and know, the entire we, racing, mechanics and truckies. How many truckies? Two or one? Four. Four. Okay. Four four truckies. We ran two Arctics and we got, you know, two guys, two two truckies on each on each but truck. But then you weren't just driving the truck, were you? No, 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 no. I Obviously. mean, um we, we would have for instance I mean I'm looking at the four guys that we had at uh, at Lake Nows at the time. I mean there was myself, I was Sort of, you know, like a garage technician, so to speak. Really, you know, we, we just we just outset everything up. Um, George Hardin, who, who I used to run in the truck with, he, he was the same. But George was um, George was pretty good with uh, as a clagman, you know, on the carbon as as what have you. So he, he used to um, do that uh, in between, sort of emptying the bins around the place and just you know trying to keep the mechanics in order. Um, Biddy Keith Biddick, he was the spares man, so he he looked after all of the all the race team spares, and then uh, Mick Oxlade or Moose, um, he was the he was the tire man. So, but we did the four of us, and I mean I'm, I'm not silly. We we understand how much how much crap all these Formula One teams take around with them these days. Um, but you know we had three cars, and all the gear that we needed to 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 go Grand Prix racing. Uh, it all went into two Arctics. Maybe we would take, you know, like a, a small 
seven and a half tonner with spare body work in it and that kind of thing. But most of the time that would sort of sit outside the circuit and just get used if, if we needed it. Um, but yeah, I mean, each, each car had three mechanics on it. So you've got three cars. So there's, you've got nine blokes. You've got, um, you've got your gearbox guy. You've got your electricians. You've got your fabbies. You've got, um, you know, I mean, one of the guys, Ian Stone, he did all, he did all the engine kitting, you know, he worked with, uh, with Stan, with Judd and that. Cause of course, you know, we used to change a lot of engines. You know, it's not it's not three for the season now. I mean, I'll I'll come on to when I work for, for Yamaha and that. I mean, it was usually three in the morning. But, well, I was going to uh, say, Be- Beaky Sims has told me in the past that Lotus in the late sixties, you get through three engines in a day. Simple, simple, really easily, simple. easily. Yeah. Well, but well, of course, go, go, yeah. Well, go, going back as well to so like the turbo, the turbo stuff. And and like some of those hand grenade engines, I mean they they were they were really good for two or three laps, and then they they would blow up. You know, they stick them up to about five and a half bar boost or something like that, and and they would just let them go. Well, of course, you you'd put an engine in in the factory, take it to the circuit, then you'd you'd run that engine on a Friday, and then they would probably take it out overnight on Friday night and put a qualifying engine in. And then that engine would come out for the race, uh, and you'd have, you'd have the whole thing, you know, all ready to go, uh, race rear end on it, you know, with all the all the gearbox and all the suspension, blah blah so blah. So the Friday just, engine would be the race engine, is that right? Sometimes I I don't know what um, I mean. We we seem to we just seem to change them at a hell of a frequency. I can't. I mean, we were we were running obviously Judds and that, and we didn't have we didn't have qualifying spec engines. We just had um, some that might have been just you know a few extra horsepower that they'd seen on the dyno, um, but you know that was it, or or something that was actually running on eight cylinders and not seven. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, t- no, I, I'm, I, I will, I will defend Judd all the time because you know, I mean, bless him. I mean, if, if, and I will link him to this. I'll, I'll Stan Hall. He's, he's been a good old pal for all the years, and that. I mean, he, we always used to take the Mickey out of him because he, he'd turn, he'd turn up to, um, to the race meeting. Obviously, he, he, he'd have his. He'd, he'd ponce a bit of space in one of the toolboxes for his bits and pieces. But he used to turn up like with a Tesco carrier bag with a, with a couple of spanners in it. And we used to say, you know, here comes the, 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 the Judd engine division, <laughs> engine mechanics. 